Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Dmitry Vostokov. Based in Dublin, Dmitry is a speaker and writer and founder of the Software Diagnostics Institute. He has written over 50 books on a variety of subjects, including memory dump analysis, software and memory forensics, malware analysis, and more. You can follow him on Twitter at Dump Analysis and check out his website at dumpanalysis.org. Dimitri is the author of a number of books that have been published on LeanPub, including Encyclopedia of Crash Dump Analysis Patterns, Detecting Abnormal Software Structure and Behavior in Computer Memory, the third edition. In this interview, we're going to talk about Dimitri's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience writing and publishing. So thank you very much, Dimitri, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thank you, Len. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for what I call their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about where you grew up and uh, how you got interested initially in computers and technology. Oh, that's a great question. Okay. I uh, grew up in Soviet Union, uh, went to school just before, I would say, the so-called perestroika, if everyone knows about that. And I got interested in many subjects. I was interested in history first. And, um, but then around, um, I would say, um, when I was maybe 12 years old or something like that, I got interested in chemistry. So I started um, uh, participating in uh, Olympic games that were very popular in Soviet Union at that time. So I was a winner couple of times at different levels, but uh, didn't make it to international level. But, you know, as a result, I um, actually um, entered Moscow State University. But due to some small, uh, I would say, fortunate probably because uh, fortunate accident, I was enrolled into special uh, computer group. So it was chemistry with um, some computational chemistry. And uh, so, and before that, actually, before I was 18, I never had any experience with uh, computers. Maybe it's calculators. We had uh, computer languages at school. It was called Russian um, computer language or Russian algorithmic language. It was all on paper. Uh, so I could, uh, I was doing time algorithms, but that was all on paper. So um, yeah, and, um, and I immediately started working with computers, started learning Fortran, assembly language. It was um, uh, computers I worked on, they were clones of PDP-11. And uh, when I say I used to work with PDP-11, people think I'm very old, but it is not because our clones were kind of much younger than original PDP-11 computers. So yeah, it was also assembly language and I got really interested in programming and one of my first achievements was I, as a compiler, I um, translated by hand 800 lines of Fortran program into 2000 lines of assembly language and got 25% increase in speed, but that was not that much, but the program was actually calculating fuel for Russian space agency. For, uh, at that time, if you remember, there was Buran yeah, uh, they first uh, like shuttle, shuttle uh, in eighties, and uh, the program calculated for weeks some properties of uh, fuel, rocket fuel. So twenty five percent increase was very great. So yeah, so I got started with chemistry, but my heart was in computers. So I started learning C, 
started doing a lot of programming uh, uh, in our chemical department. So a lot of experience, but then by accident again, uh, actually there was breakdown of Soviet Union. Life was not very good for being a student. It was the beginning of 90s and by stroke of accident or luck or whatever, I joined a company uh, from uh, United States that uh, was doing a speech recognition. It was called Covox. The guys were from Covox, roughly. It was one of pioneers uh, in computer recognition. And they were competitors of Sound Blaster, if you remember this company. Uh, so yeah, and they spent like seven uh, years doing some stuff. And after that, joined another company, also working from Moscow. It was related to image processing. Uh, AccuSoft, very famous in state, and also, but it was all work, uh, I would say, from home or from some remote office. And just before uh, coming to Ireland in 2001, in January, I worked for a couple of years for a very big system integrator in uh, Russia, where I also learned um, kind of modern software engineering practices. And 20 years ago, in January 2001, I arrived to Ireland started working for Ericsson and some other companies spent 14 years in Citrix. So I really liked, and actually regarding my career, I actually gave a big uh, kind of uh, thought about it before our interview. And I found out that I probably have uh, three distinct careers going <laughs> parallel. So one career is um, software engineering that started, I would say in 1993, probably. Or even early, if you count me programming in a chemistry department, right? The second career is software technical support. It started when I joined Citrix in 2003. It was actually going in parallel with uh, software engineering, but 14 years in technical support is a very good experience because most of software engineers, uh, they don't have experience with software technical support, working, working with customers and understanding their mentality. Uh, so this kind of sales, all this. And third, of course, um, I would say our career is in publishing, in writing and publishing. That's a, thanks very much for that summary. I'm sure it was hard to, hard to keep it so uh, compact, um, but I really like that you, you right, have the okay, sort of three, okay, three phases good. in the end. That's really great, but there's a lot to talk about there. Um, one thing, so you mentioned perestroika. Um, I think that actually probably about half of our audience doesn't know uh, what that is. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what life was like for you sort of in your early days as a student and what, what perestroika was. Okay, so perestroika, it was complete breakdown of the Soviet, I would say, uh, late socialism style in Soviet Union. It was kind of changed. So it was glasnost also. Glasnost means you could talk about different topics freely. So I would say life in uh, that time, uh, gradually become uh, so, I would say, um, free, so free speech was everywhere, like probably in uh, end of 80s, beginning of 90s. I would say in some sense, um, the free speech was even more free than in other democratic countries of the world at that time. So even in Russia. So there was Yeltsin, one of the first um, Russian presidents. So life was very good initially during initial stages of perestroika. So it was very good. But then, you know, this kind of breakdown was associated with um, 
changing from socialism to capitalism. So it was in some sense abrupt coming of a wild capitalism to Russia. So the life for students was not very good if they were not backed up by employment. So I remember one day, like the prices were like five times more expensive. You know, imagine for students it would be very hard. But yeah, I, I did some rough uh, times for a year or something like that. But then I say I was very lucky because I joined working for American company. And imagine my first uh, salary was just $50 and it was enough to survive. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> life was very luxurious. You know, yeah, you know, no, that's, like... that's very fascinating. I always, um, <laughs> but I always, since uh, then it was growing. Yeah, my salary yeah. was growing. <laughs> was, was Perestroika, was the, did that mean the open the opening up? Is that what it kind of Yes, yeah, opening it, up also yeah. to the whole world, but it's also yeah. opening up internally. Yeah. You could speak a lot of things, you could read a lot of books, and it was a very great experience. And also computers were coming to Russia and Soviet Union. So it like uh, end of 80s, beginning of 90s, there were personal computers coming to Russia. So it's a very, very interesting, I would say, period. Yeah, that's uh, that's really fascinating. Well, I've, spoken, well. I've spoken to people, you know, on this podcast from all around the world about their first experience with technology and things like that. But it, you know, your experience of being sort of in this very serious I mean, not multiple yes, phases yes, I of transitions. Serious computers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and so, you know, when you when you mentioned the the sort of um, the Olympics and stuff like that, you know, for chemistry and things like that, I think one thing that it sort of might be difficult to communicate to people who aren't aware of the history is that this was a very important thing for the Soviet Union to compete globally and on and numerous things, right? And the idea that you would be, you know, recruiting students to participate in this was you were there was a self aware idea that were sort of building the reputation and trying to sell, send the message that this is a good way to live in our country. Yes. And then all of a sudden it's like, actually perestroika comes along and it's like, no, that's not the right way to live. And <laughs> just a very, yes, it must yes, have been yes. a very breakdown of mentality. Yeah. Of many yeah. people. Many yeah. People. And so, and so you, I, uh, you started working for this American company in the early nineties. Uh, yes, if I get yes, the timeline yes. correctly. And you said you were working from home. So how did that, how did that work? Oh, I would say, you know, companies, uh, okay, the opening of society also resulted. There were a lot of entrepreneurs coming to Russia, to Moscow, St. Petersburg, or St. Petersburg, or whatever other cities uh, at that time, actually, to buy resources, like people resources. So there were a lot of scientists working also in Russia, like, for example, speech recognition or uh, speech things is everything kind of related. Or, or, or rocket fuel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, was, uh, I wasn't I uh, was a scientist in speech recognition, but I was mm -hmm. very good in system programming. And also Windows at that time started to develop, you know, Windows 3.1 and all this. So it was great time, you know, so Microsoft. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So were you, were you working online? Like would you, had the, had the, the internet in the World Wide Web, was that a sort of uh, oh, no, no. popularly? We used, we used, um, we used uh, initially we used internet, I remember was coming something about 1996 to Moscow around that, if I, am, if I remember correctly. But before we used BBS, looking both systems, email, all this kind of thing, email, not that probably like internet type, you know, but something different, like, yeah. And people were coming also, oh, uh, people were coming just to Moscow to visit like once in a month or two months. And uh, we either worked from home, I worked even uh, in my laboratory also in Moscow State University and from home as well. And later we had the office. So it 
was quite that's just that's just so fascinating so i'm sure you've got a wealth of stories to tell but i wanted to uh, uh go into a little bit of detail about that specific example you gave when you were in school i believe of translating code by hand uh from one from one language to another um that's just so interesting and i'm just very curious about the process so you were given something probably on paper and told to translate it and you would have had paper books on on Fortran or, or whatever it was, and then you would have had to yes. su submit your result. And did someone else then enter that code into a machine and then run it? I was actually, uh, yeah, the code was already there in Fortran. And I was actually writing it, I think I was writing it also in some editor. Okay. But you know, at that time, editors were very, uh, I would say simple, you know, they're not that powerful like now. Uh, and yeah, I was just translating line by line and uh, assembly language was not uh, very, um, I would say complex uh, for PDP 11, but mostly it was of course floating point uh, style. And yeah, and was kind of line by line translating, even uh, translating print statements as well in Fortran and then running that uh, to see if we get the same kind of output. That's really fascinating. And then, and so, and you mentioned, um, I guess you've, you've had a couple of phases of your career and a couple of phases of your life where you were living as well. Uh, and you moved to Ireland in uh, 2001, I believe, is that correct? Yes, yes, in January 2001, yeah. And, and I'm just curious, I'm way, I, I myself have, you know, moved from one country to another to, to live and work and things like that. And so have many other guests on the podcast. And I'm curious about that. Was it easy for you to move to, I mean, in a, in a kind of, legal and citizen, citizenship sense? Was it easy for you to move to Ireland from Russia? Oh, yes, I can talk about this freely. It's a wonderful experience. First of okay. all, you know, you, you, you can't believe I actually, I was actually living and working in Moscow, but I was recruited in Ukraine. You know, because, you know, Moscow, uh, the life in Moscow was good and not many people will go into, uh, uh, you know, um, I would say willing to go to Ireland at that time okay so but from ukraine a lot so the recruitment was in ukraine so i flew from moscow to kiev had some interviews there was hired flew back to moscow then i applied for my uh working visa and actually uh just shortly before that ireland introduced the so-called working visas so you could freely come to ireland work up for two years, then renew your visa, working visa, but you were not dependent on your employer. In, if something was coming like a layoff or you wanted to change employment, then you could freely change your employment, like go to another employer. So it's not, it's, it's different in other countries. So you kind of, you lose your employment, you have to come back. So that was one major, I would say, uh, uh, good point for me to come to Ireland, actually, and I came to Ireland actually to learn English. I'm not may uh, I may not be very well in speaking, but I in writing or reading, you know, I'm very good. So I mostly concentrated on reading and uh, writing, you know. So you have to uh, to kind of to put something aside, you know, you can't learn all these things. <laughs> no, I think, well, I think you're speaking very well. And of course your, your writing is very good, very good as well. But um, yeah, that's interesting. I imagine that was probably around the time when Ireland was sort of becoming the, what they called the Celtic tiger at the time or yes, something like yes, that. Yes. And so they were, they were competing very aggressively to become a place where people, particularly I imagine in technology and finance and things like that would work. And I didn't know that detail though. That's very interesting that they were, they were being open about, um, 
uh, sort of immigration and work status to kind yes, of encourage yes. people to come and stay and not be afraid of losing their job, but actually be, exactly. be able to sort of, you know, find better ones. And, and then, then you've got this pool of local people who are already there that the companies that are growing can draw upon uh, without having to worry so much about the sort of minutiae of, you know, exactly transitioning from one job to another and things like that. That's, that's a really fascinating fascinating detail and um i'm just kind of curious how did you how did you like it when you and I, I imagine you've probably been living in dublin the whole time but was it was it a big shock um yes it was very big shock actually i arrived to a small town um uh, in the middle just the heart of Ireland, called uh, athlone not to confuse with uh, cpus that were popular at that time uh intel so md i don't remember so uh, <laughs> it was a long time ago, but it was a popular joke, you know, about. So Athlone was a great small town, but imagine you uh, live in a very big city with millions of people, and then you arrive in a small town and you walk faster than twice as fast as other people, initially. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, but I liked it. And after some time, I found a new company, actually was persuaded by a recruiter so life in Dublin is better. I mean, in sense, you know, you could see more, like in big cities. So, and then I moved uh, shortly, kind of in less than a year, I moved to Dublin. Uh, and since then, of course, I live uh, in Dublin and uh, really like it. I imagine people must have been very interested in you in that in that small town as well. Uh, all of a sudden, here's this Moscovite. Uh, amongst oh, yes, yes. People, people actually, Irish people are very friendly. I really, you know, that's great experience. Yeah, so. that's, that's really fascinating. And so, and so um, professionally then, um, you ended up at uh, Cit working for Citrix, I believe. That was, uh, was that while you were in Ireland that you started working for them? No, no, no. Initially, I started working for Ericsson. Oh, for Ericsson, sorry. Uh, okay. Company. Uh, yes, yeah, in Athlone, uh, very nice, uh, and still have very nice office. And uh, yeah, and uh, then I, I actually moved to another company called Program Research, that was a compiler front end front ends for C and C So very good experience, learning how actually semantics of uh, learning about semantics of programming languages, C Actually, there I finally learned uh, C well, and uh, but then after. Um, um, I was in one year and a half, probably. Yeah, I moved to see uh, another company. I was con contractor, consultant, my first security company. Um, and then after doing some consulting work there, contracting, uh, I finally settled um, in Citrix. And Citrix was a really great experience for me. It's, I would say, like at that time, my career forked into software engineering and uh, software technical support. And I also started visiting the United States for work purposes. So it was also a great experience. I was in Florida, I was in Seattle. So I really liked that the whole 14 year experience, really good for me. And you mentioned, yeah, the, 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 the sort of shift to working with customers. And so was this like big, big corporate customers that you were working with when you were doing support? Oh, yeah. Citrix is a very well-known kind of company providing remote desktop services, terminal services, uh, Windows, uh, also uh, acceleration of uh, internet traffic. Uh, so very well-known company and they have now kind of cloud services. 
uh, now. So yeah, customers were mostly EMEA from uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Yes. And UK. So it was all customers. I would say all Fortune, most of Fortune companies, small companies. But most mostly my work was about internal customers. Like, oh, I see. Um, but from time to time, I was also engaging with the kind of outside customers. And this was a really good experience to see everything like that. So, And I'm just looking at your, your profile on, on LinkedIn here. Um, and uh, this, this will come up when we start talking about your books and things like that. But you worked on, um, you, you performed diagnostics and you did anomaly detection and things like that. And I was just, and particularly, um, uh, you see, you say here, in, or you, it says on your bio, um, analysis of software execution artifacts such as memory dumps, traces, and logs. And I just wanted oh, to yes. take the opportunity here to, to link what we're going to be talking about with your books to to your career. So, for anyone listening um, who might not know anything, let's say they don't know anything about this kind of stuff, what are what are memory dumps? Okay, it's basically um, I had one management training at some point when I was a manager, and uh, the guy also. Um, asked me this question and I, I, I answered and then he replied, oh, I understand that's computer psychology, you know, like psychoanalysis or whatever of computers. But of course I won't uh, provide this answer. So basically you have memory in your computer and if something happens, um, some wrong behavior, like for example, computer stops working or hands or frozen, you just take the contents of that memory from your computer, put it in some file, and then you send it uh, to some analyst to look at it. And then you look at this memory and try to find who was responsible. Maybe this is operating system vendor, or maybe that is some other company, uh, you know, several companies, because sometimes there are conflicts. So then you kind of analyze and you work in such sense, like you are a general practitioner or GP, like in medicine. So in doing, providing diagnostics. And then, you know, if you have enough knowledge, you may even fix it. But most of the time, you won't be able to fix it because say the problem lies in operating system then, and then you advise, so go to that specialist. So it may be Citrix, or that may be Microsoft, or that may be Linux, so all kind of thing, you know. So that's what I say, diagnostics. So initially I was, calling on that memory dump analysis. But then gradually I realized that it's actually software diagnostics that, that was I was doing. And you also have software logs. This is similar to narrative in medicine. So you provide stories. So programs run, they execute, they do something, and then they write their own stories. So they write their own stories in a log. So I actually founded uh, the so-called software narratology because I was actually thinking how to analyze all these logs. And then I found out that narratology, what kind of stories, is actually close approximation that computers were doing. So. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely like to talk about that. And this is so fascinating. So just to, just to sort of um, start at the sort of very detailed level because this connection between sort of psychology or psychoanalysis the stories that we tell and then, you know, what computers do and, and what we do with them and how we try and understand what they've done. We, to, to get to talk about that, we sort of need to understand a little bit, just at a very basic non-technical level about how a computer works. And I just remember a friend of mine who I've never studied, studied computer science. Um, I'm sort of Lean Pub's resident non-technical person, although I'm, I'm pretty technical in, in a lot of ways, but the way someone once described it to me was like, okay, uh, a computer is like a list of tasks. Imagine it like a big stack of paper 
and uh, each the, the topmost task is is the first one that you do and then you take that one off and then you do the next task and the next task and it's just that it does it incredibly fast uh, and that there's this stack of tasks and they go in order uh, but then what you're what you're saying here is that the computer will have a kind of memory of what it of what it yeah, did right. uh, yeah, I, yeah, memory, yeah exactly and, and and much better than our own memories uh, in a yeah, way and they talk very uh, fast they talk really fast so they, they talk, talk so fast that they are narrative maybe yeah. like gigabytes of or terabytes of information and then you have to look at that narrative and try to find out what actually computer was saying it's it's so fascinating yeah no, to, to talk about to talk about what the computer was saying and to think about it in those terms right because i think for for a lot of us you know as ordinary you know computer users if it if if something breaks we sort of do the equivalent sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively of just unplugging it and plugging it back in and if it works again we're fine we just carry on but if it's someone like you or like something very serious is happening and, and then you actually need to look into it and figure out maybe we got it working again by banging the machine or something like that but <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but but you have to understand what actually went wrong and i think that if if you're not familiar with with how this kind of technology works you might think oh you'll just Go in the go in the memory of task by task, and then you'll find the one that failed, and that'll explain it. But obviously, exactly. it's far more complex than that, and you're not always going to find the answer. But what you particularly, I think, um, uh, are we're interested in, and are interested in these patterns, right? And this is so you've got this encyclopedia of over 300 patterns that you've identified over the years. Um, and yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that connection to narratology, right? Because the computer is telling you a story. The memory is telling you a story, uh, but then you've got to you've got to look for that story and you've got to find what those patterns are, and then you've got to communicate them to someone to fix the problem or explain what it is. So maybe if you could talk a little bit more about narratology and how this all fits in, uh, maybe maybe even if you can think of a specific example where you were working on a particular project and you were given this challenge to figure something out, and how you would use this in sort of your professional life to deal with what you've got to deal with. Okay, so. Um, okay, that's a great question and uh, about patterns. And um, you know, the patterns were very popular um, before I actually started working in technical support, but they were mostly used in uh, designing and implementing or architecting software. Okay. It was, uh, this phase I usually call like construction phase. But you know, apart from construction, once software is constructed, you actually ship it to customers and it could be running in a big data center, spanning 10,000 computers. So the company may have uh, 10,000 desktops, right? And then something may happen and you have to analyze what's the problem or find a root cause or do some diagnostics. And this phase I usually call post-construction. And here we also need to have patterns. So we have problem. So we need to use, um, we need to have some vocabulary or language actually to describe these problems and solutions to them. So basically what I came upon was the idea of uh, analysis patterns for post-construction. So we have problem, we have to analyze it. And then you have common ways, common techniques uh, to do that analysis and uh, find something. So this kind of analysis patterns, of course, they are completely independent from uh, just patterns. So what is just pattern could be your computer crashed in particular module. Or a simple example is, uh, you know, now we have uh, printer problems uh, came to a spotlight security, right? 
So, but in the past, printer problems were abundant because uh, printer drivers were designed for home use. They were not designed to use in corporate environments where you had, um, like, say, 100 users suddenly starting to print. So, and then printer driver would misbehave and crash uh, the print spooler, the printer kind of print manager, right? And then that print manager would actually um, dump itself, or operating system would dump it into a memory dump. So that memory dump would end up, like say, uh, would be sent to me. So I would look at it and find out, okay, this particular print driver vendor is at fault. So, but this is kind of a pattern, so, right? But how I would find out that this particular driver was at fault, you know, this is analysis pattern. So basically that encyclopedia is, is uh, this encyclopedia talks about analysis patterns. There could be some patterns there as well, but mostly it is analysis patterns because otherwise, you know, there could be millions of patterns. Yeah, no, it's, it's really fascinating. And I, I think, I think that the, the, I mean, it's even stronger than a kind of analogy with which, with what happens in psychiatry, for example, right? So um, what's the big manual called the DSM or something like that? Yes, exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and this is, this is, I'm, I'm not going to try and derail this too much, but that's actually a real, a real sort of interest of mine is that one of the things that people, people get, people misunderstand a lot of what happens in psychiatry because psychiatry made the terrible unscientific mistake of using ordinary English language words to name the patterns that it not it like and there's always this little bit of a dialectic right are you identifying the pattern or are you creating the pattern and it's kind right. of both at the same time and people would understand what psychiatry psychiatry and sort of what psychologists or, or therapists are up to much better if instead of using words like depression they named it like pattern x1592 and then you could just right. oh it's pattern x1592 you go look that up and you see there's some paper where someone defined pattern x1592 and it's you know under certain conditions we can observe behavior xyz in response to stimulus stimuli right, right. one two three and then you'd be oh okay that's but what i'm what i'm talking about when i'm talking about quote unquote you know, sort of depression is actually a an identified pattern and a pattern that can be identified according to various acceptable methods um, and what you're what you're talking about is the understanding of the behavior and you know in particular the interesting thing we we, we particularly often get interested when things go wrong um, and oh, so yes. we want to we want to be able to we want to be able to I mean you know now when you start talking about fixing it gets more problematic when you're talking about people's minds rather than computers uh, but um, but but still the sort of the the, the ideas is very similar to what's going on and then in, you know we need when you talk about having a shared language well why do we give names to these patterns and then have manuals or encyclopedias it's so that we can talk about them yes. uh, and and with once we can talk about them then we can resolve or address the situations but what's happening in, in sort of psychiatry and what's happening and what you're talking about are sort of not just analogously similar but are actually kind of substantively similar Yes, yes, and uh, I would say uh, psychopathology is also one of my favorite. I have a few books on that. I'm not that deep into it, but I'm trying actually to um, learn um, from various disciplines. Yeah, you because, talk about like, software, software pathology, right? Yes, yes, yes. Something. No, this is yeah. So, software pathology is, um, I would say, um, more related. Yeah, to uh, defects and uh, like similar to pathology because pathology is now used everywhere. Like, for example, people in data science talk about data pathology, 
right? You know, and uh, so why not to talk about software pathology as well, especially is uh, pathology has a log suffix that actually, uh, you know, as a joke, maybe related to logs, but it's not, you know, so, but uh, starting uh, talking about patterns, uh, analysis patterns, I also kind of apply the same approach to analyzing logs and traces. So something how you would analyze a trace or a log, not just finding a particular that web server crashed at a particular point of time, you know, that would be concrete pattern or general pattern like web server crashes, right? You know, in particular module, but way how to analyze them. You know, what, and what, what are traces? Uh, okay, uh, uh, what are traces? Traces, there are different, um, I would say definitions of that. I usually use uh, traces and logs interchangeably. So for me, it is the same thing. But nowadays people talk about tracing in context of distributed tracing. But uh, in, I was lucky enough actually because all my trace analysis experience was distributed. And I didn't know it was, it was only recently called distributed uh, tracing. So, uh, and just simple when program outputs some statements on the screen, this is usually nowadays called logs. But okay. I use them uh, kind of uh, in the same way for me. It's just, uh, I would say, marketing um, description. So some mm -hmm. people, if I say trace analysis patterns, people would say, okay, is it related to distributed tracing? But if I say log analysis patterns, people would think, okay, it's about logs, but not trace. So I made up this trace uh, and uh, log analysis patterns recently. And is tracing, for example, but, uh, I mean, what, what is a trace in sort of in the context, say, of cloud computing or something like that? Okay, so in cloud computing, you have uh, a lot of uh, services, native services, uh, native applications. You have operating system calls. So everything is interconnected. You have containers, you have uh, container management components, everything. And then they all talk. They all output their logs. So, and then you want actually, uh, and you want to actually to correlate them. So your small service, I would say crashes, but you want to see uh, what happened at that time in particular, I would say broker or uh, operating system, what, what's going on there, right? So you, you want to combine as much as possible in some intelligent way. Of course, you can't uh, combine everything, you know, it's too much. So this is kind of uh, an idea behind distributed tracing. So yeah, to combine individual small logs, so you could do some correlation similar to data science, data analysis. Okay, okay. So it's it's across. I mean, I had I had a sort of crude idea of, of tracing being across different specific machines, but you're saying it's the different programs that are talking to each other as well, and they'll each have their own log, and then it's not, and it's then not you... even talking to each other. It could be also the program. Like I would say, uh, say you have a debate in uh, Congress or in okay. parliament, right? You know, you have 20 people talking at the same time and you actually, uh, someone they may be talking to each other and then someone starts shouting and then, right, you know, and you, you have transcription of everything, right? And you want to correlate. Okay, that guy said something about taxes here, right? And then another one at the same time was silenced, silencing himself, right? You know, himself. Oh, that's, that's so, just uh, super. I, you know, you, Okay, that silence may be a sign, actually, why that deputy was actually 
not speaking for this particular topic. So all this kind of actually the silence itself would be also some sign. You know, you have to, uh, so you do correlation uh, between all different, I would say, narratives, software narratives. That's incredibly uh, fascinating to me. I mean, particularly the idea of, of doing a kind of analysis of simultaneous um, speakers and what they're saying. Uh, because I mean, my 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 academic background is in English literature um, and in philosophy, right. and of course the, the 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 model that we have in our and typically sort of in philosophy for for argue, analysis, analyzing a debate is one speaker speaks and then another speaker speaks and then another speaker speaks and then another speaker speaks, or right. even when we're right. when we're analyzing different works of literature in relationship to each other, it's always there's the whole coherent thing and then there's the next whole coherent thing um, but the idea of doing some analysis of multiple speakers at the same time and then sort of understanding the meaning and the interplay of those as you know interacting forces and what the outcome is for example is just really interesting i'll have to go go away and think about that um uh but on that note, you know, to, uh, oh, sorry, uh, interrupting you. Actually, you mentioned yeah. uh, English uh, literature studies, and you know, I was particularly interested in uh, narratology and uh, critical theory as well. So I read a couple of books. So even some tracing local analysis pattern names were influenced by uh, critical theory and uh, narratology. So I, I understand. Oh. Yeah. And, so, oh, can you can you think of a couple off the top of your head? Uh, that's really fascinating. For example, the familiarizing effect, something that you read. Uh, yeah. For example, in particular, um, uh, I would say book, and then something that uh, triggers you, something you see something completely unfamiliar, right? You know, so you so this also happens in um, in um, trace and log analysis as well, and um, yeah, there are a couple of others. I would say, oh, so I published a book called um, uh, Trace and Lock Analysis, and it's now, I think, in the fourth edition, but I changed um, uh, title. So uh, the latest title is called Trace uh, Log uh, Text Narrative, because I finally realized that the same ideas could be applied also to, uh, to text, because you can actually break text into similar, like we have traces and logs and apply the whole kind of apparatus of uh, tracing log analysis. There are more than 200 patterns there. Um, okay. That's really fascinating. Uh, the, uh, the, particularly the, the concept of defamiliarization, for example, for those who might not know, I'll, I'll try, I mean, I haven't talked about this in years, but to try, and, to try and explain it to people a little bit, it would be like, imagine something that you take for granted suddenly yes. becomes very present to you. So for an, an example that um, might be uh, the site, the, 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 the sudden presence in your environment of someone wearing industrial level hearing protection and operating a leaf blower. Um, <laughs> you know, if to, to a lot of people, they just don't, that's just a part of, a part of the landscape, you know, every once in a while. But if you, if you some, sometimes you can have this moment where you kind of blink and go, what on earth is someone doing on a, a street where people live operating industrial machinery that's so loud it damages hearing. Um, and when you start thinking about things in, in ordinary, or ordinarily, you just think, oh, there's someone doing yard work. But when you right. start bringing these other categories of explanation to it, then it can become very strange to you all of a sudden, something that was so familiar, you didn't even notice it. When you come at it from another direction, you suddenly kind of see it in a new light. And so the 
the term defamiliarization is partly partly about that kind of thing. And that can actually be part of like a, a sort of the, that's when things start getting very political as well, right? Because that's where it would be, you know, in Marxist theory, it would be, you know, trying to make the sort of structures of capitalism defamiliarized, right? right? So it's like, what? Am, why is it that, you know, behind that window is a loaf of bread and I'm hungry, but I can't have it unless I've got some specific bills in my pocket that I can give the person on the other side who's protecting that loaf of bread, um, you know, things like that. That's so interesting. And so actually just on that note, I mean, and this might be a good opportunity to segue to, you said there was this third part of your career where um, you got into um, publishing uh, and writing and um, you founded something, I'm just looking at the name of it here, I had it here, um, Open Task Publishing, uh, which I believe you founded in, in 2008. And I'm, I'm hoping that was a good opportunity for you to, to talk about that, that shift in your yes. career. And so how did that how did that come about? Okay, that's okay. Yeah, it's an interesting story actually. Um I I was avid reader of many books in software engineering, so I always wanted um to write my own book. But you know, it's one thing, you know, many people want to write books and uh, many people don't start actually or start and then don't finish, right? So and I wanted to write a book about um as you guess, uh, uh speech uh, sound recognition because that was of my um, kind of uh, first uh, interesting projects. Uh, so, but what happened actually due to some luck, I started blogging, I think in uh, 2006, I started blogging and uh, immediately I got that idea as a software engineer working in technical support. Uh, I got that idea of patterns, analysis patterns, started writing about crash dump analysis patterns. And because uh, this new field was uh, completely unexplored before, so there were actually a lot of things to write. So many people start blogging, but, you know, they don't have much to say. Not because, uh, you know, they kind of don't have abilities, but because, you know, field is already taken, you know, you, you can't just say original things all the time or you know, don't have ideas, but here I, I had plenty of ideas. So software was crashing every day. So uh, like lots of things and uh, with the help of uh, debuggers, I could also uh, write additional text because, you know, you could include snip snippets of debuggers and uh, debugging output and then- Right, like specific examples, text. yeah. Yeah, specific examples. So, and then um, actually, and then uh, roughly in 2007, I believe uh, there was one book published uh, called uh, The Old New Theme or The New Old Fee uh, Theme about Windows uh, API. Uh, it was actually a collection of um, blog entries. It was uh, published by a big publisher. And uh, I thought, okay, so maybe, maybe I should actually publish my own blog as a book. And I was thinking about these lines. And at the same time, also at this time, there were some um, uh, uh, sites like Lulu, for example, press. So you could actually upload your uh, PDF file. And immediately after a couple of days, you could get your book printed. So I started with, with printing out a debugger output. So I got like pretty heavy books called reference stack traces. 
So I, it's very good experience. I would say, I, I would say exciting experience to uh, upload your PDF file and then suddenly have your book kind of, it's similar like to DIY projects with electronics mm -hmm. or, you know, something you can hold in your hands. So, yeah. And then after that, I decided let's try with, um, you know, uh, with this blog. Some uh, people actually approached me when I announced that I would be publishing. So what publisher would be publishing? <laughs> They're asking me, you know, all names were mentioned like big publishers, but I said, no, 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 nobody contacted me you know, from big publishers. So I decided to publish myself. So I had to learn, it was very steep learning curve. So initially I published on Lulu as like in hardback and paperback, but then I decided so I actually wanted to have all this on Amazon. So I started buying and reading books on how to do publishing for Amazon. And there was no Kindle at that time or creative space or whatever. So, and the only thing was to do publishing for Amazon was to join uh, Lightning Source that was um, print on demand that's now part of Ingram. So I got this account and uh, learned how to um, provide pre-media create all these covers for books. Um, I had to buy software like Adobe Acrobat to do all this, uh, I would say, uh, SMIC conversions and all uh, kind of what real publishers do. And then I started kind of publishing and my books started appearing on Amazon and that was great success, especially for the first volume of uh, Memory Dump Analysis Anthology. This is now in 16 books or 14 volumes. And, um, and then I started adding more books and more books uh, in color, in paperback, in hardcover. And, uh, and uh, lately I also started selling in PDF, in EPUBs. And I think in 2008 or 10, uh, O'Reilly, uh, Safari Books Online approached me and oh. I signed a contract, 10 year contract with them. So I also, uh, for 10 years, I had a kind of very uh, good channel for content publishing um, and also books 24 by 7 uh, also as well published my uh, I would say um, first editions um, yeah so it's great experience yeah, and so you did. a good story always comes to end you know Safari Books Online decided to um, stop uh, cooperating with small publishers. So as, as soon my 10 year old contract finished. So they actually said, okay, we are now concentrating on uh, our own stuff, learning. So, and then I was looking for another channel. And then I recalled uh, that a year or so ago, I learned about LeanPub. And then I started putting all my uh, PDF books on uh, EPUB variants where I had them on Linpub. And initially it was very slow, but actually it's great success because some books I actually only published initially on Linpub. That was um, uh, visual category theory. Um, kind of yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk about that. Stuff. Yeah, I know. I'd like to talk about that in a bit too. That's that's a really great, really great series there. Um, but yeah, it's, no, that's, thank you very much for sharing that story. It's interesting. You're your trajectory with publishing is kind of similar to to, to lean pubs in a way, and it's the same timeline. Um, uh, it, it almost um, lean pub started out as a blog to book platform, oh. um, and my my, my maybe I thought about it 
Look, to move yeah, and, and actually, my co-founder Peter's first self-published book was on Lulu. Um, and oh, if you wow. want to read about that story, you can go to LeanPub slash Lean and 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 read all about it. But um, yeah, his 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 experience there, I won't go into it in detail, but was uh, you know, of course, the fast the, the, it's so wonderful to have you know an actual physical copy of your book. But along the way, he was publishing it as as a digital book and in progress. And he would you know mm. give people give people a code when they bought the book on Lulu to go to a, basically a website where they could comment and stuff like that and, and give feedback. And so the, the book that he ended up publishing in print on Lulu when it was done had been built along the way. And that was kind of how, how the idea for lean publishing came, came along. Oh. But then, but as you're talking about, you know, like back in the day, getting a print book was like really complicated. Everybody felt like they were reinventing the wheel every time they did it. And there is still to some extent, you know, an element of that. Um, but you know, it wouldn't have been without banging our heads against the same wall <laughs> stubbornly That's over time. I, I say, I say that. Uh, so, 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 you know, I say that I have this kind of publishing career, separate career, because I had to learn so many things. Uh, did some, so I could, I was at once. I was even thinking, let's write a publishing CV, just where I only put things related to publishing. You know, just you know, and completely omit computers. So like all different things. So I may at one point produce publishing CV. Oh, um, I, think, I think that would be a really interesting, publishing. that would be a really interesting story to tell um, because I, I think, and I think there'd be a lot of other people who'd be fascinating. I mean, to, to hear about someone who's, there are a lot of other people who've gone on the same path. And I think a lot of people feel very kind of alone in that, but actually there's many authors all around the world who've, who've struggled against the same things and sort of succeeded and failed in the same ways and things like that. And it's, it's a really fascinating story. And so actually this gives us the opportunity towards the end of the interview, we get very much into the weeds of writing and self-publishing and things like that. And I wanted to ask you, how are you, how do you write your books today and how do you produce them? What, what apps do you use or anything like that? I am pretty much a Windows user. So, because most of my life experience was with Windows, uh, not counting MS-DOS, but uh, I would say, yes, I use Microsoft Word. Okay. Stream to PDF later on, and then use uh, Adobe Acrobat to do all kind of finishing and use Adobe, or and use, um, sorry, uh, yeah, Adobe, uh, Photoshop, Adobe Photoshop, or I would say, uh, uh, image conversion because sometimes you need specific uh, images, not in a color space, but also with uh, some amount of uh, grayscale. You know, otherwise, you know, you won't be able, you won't be accepted by a real kind of uh, production environment. Uh, oh, that's so fascinating! So, that's fascinating. So you write in Word, and then you'll you'll produce a PDF, and then um, uh, then you'll add the images in Adobe Acrobat. Is that how it would work, or would you put the images in? in no, the no, 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 no. Like uh, basically, it works into online now. Actually, my uh, pipeline is now kind of very organized now. So when okay. I, I I do everything in Microsoft Word, but then I fork into print. Oh, into I see. Online, okay. online have all the images added, a kind of PNG or JPEG or all kind of fine. But for, for print, especially now, I do color books mostly. So I need to add uh, different, uh, the same pictures, but in a different color space. I and see, okay. Different property, like for example, less black grain. So I, all these adjustments I need to do in some software, but at some point of time, long time ago, I bought Adobe Acrobat. So, because I tried with open source and I couldn't do quite the same 
thing that was commercial Adobe Acrobat was doing. So I had to buy Adobe Acrobat. Uh, expensive, but actually it was worth it. For 10 years, I'm using the sure. same Adobe Acrobat. So, uh, and, uh, I, and then, you know, I put some file for publishing and uh, 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 online I distribute. Uh, on LeanPub or sell separately or, uh, but if I want to do uh, EPUB, I usually use um, iAuthn on, okay. on uh, Mac Pro or some kind of um, computer. That's excellent tool to produce EPUB. You just load a Microsoft Word file and then you do some corrections. And then okay. the six okay. minutes, you know, it's very straightforward now. Okay. I, or okay. I book author or something. I don't remember correctly how it is called. I, I think yeah, that's I no, that that's really great to great to hear those details. Um, uh, and especially the forking from from ebook to, to print and sort of dealing with dealing with images and things like that is is something that can be really difficult. But once you've, as you say, once you've got your pipeline organized, and that can take a long time, it, it can be a really streamlined process. And um, mm -hmm. uh, just for anyone, a very very particular point to make for anyone listening, um. Uh, LeanPub, mm -hmm. LeanPub has a bring your own book writing mode, which is what Dimitri uses. Yes, so, yes. so you can you can use all of our awesome. I mean, well, I'm you know speaking speaking proudly of our own product, but um, uh, you can use you can use all of our awesome features for in progress publishing and all that kind of stuff without having to use one of LeanPub's you know write write in a LeanPub writing mode process. So you can actually have your own totally independent process for producing PDF, EPUB, and Mobi. And you can still publish your book on LeanPub, and that's what that's what Dimitri does. Yes, um, that's great. That's great. And uh, one feature I like on LeanPub as well is, uh, you know, sometimes people return books for different reasons, right? You know, and I like actually that they they uh, are able to write some comments while they actually return it. And it actually sometimes it triggered uh, me writing uh, free books, like for example, one uh, user of uh, visual category theory. Uh, complain that uh, he has difficulty understanding mathematical language used, right? And so, and then I immediately produced uh, another part zero, free one, also published on LeanPub. It's free, it actually explains this language in some detail. So for me, it was kind of, and one story was I made a mistake in one of the books, like uh, the repository for source code for projects wasn't correct. So, and um, Actually, uh, the customer actually returned the book because of that. And I immediately corrected and kind of. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing that story. Yeah, actually, that's that's something we don't talk about a lot here. We, we do talk about refunds sometimes, but so, so people who might not know, uh, on LeanPub, we, we have a uh, what we call our, our happiness guarantee, 100% happiness guarantee, which is that within 45 days of any purchase, you can just do a couple of clicks and you can do a refund. Um, but for anyone who, I mean, for LeanPub authors listening who don't, who maybe have never asked for a refund themselves before, if you request a refund on LeanPub, you can just click a button, like you can click a button, request a refund, and then click another button and it's done. Uh, but we also have a little field where you can give feedback optionally if you want to, that the author can see. And they, by the way, they won't see who you are. They won't get any personal information about you when you do that. But we actually, if you haven't done it yourself, Dimitri, we actually have what we hope people take in good humor as a kind of passive aggressive little paragraph that says, <laughs> We're sorry you don't like this book for whatever reason. It's perfectly fine. This is how much money the author is going to lose if you click the button below. <laughs> and if you'd like to, if you'd like to leave it, it's it, you know it's better said than that. But if you'd like to leave a message, you can do that. And actually, this is a way because that that people have of actually communicating to an author why they what they didn't like about the book, and that can really help you um, 
not only with the content of your book or any mistakes or lack of clarity or things you could just do better, but also with the presentation of your book, right? So for example, people might say, oh, I thought this was a book about subject X, but then I found out it was about subject Y. And then you can use that to change your about the book description on LeanPub, or you can even change your subtitle or even your title if your book hasn't been out for very long. And, and that kind of feedback, people often think, oh no, a refund, I'm losing X amount of money or someone is, really doesn't like me. And it's often just, they're, they're like, no, no, that's, it's not that they dislike you or they think it was a terrible book or something like that. And that kind of feedback can actually be right. really helpful. Um, uh, I don't wanna let you go without ask, giving you an opportunity to talk about your visual category theory books, um, which, are, which are really fun uh, and involve Lego. So I was wondering if you could talk a little, just a little bit about, about that, that series. And you've got one for chemistry as well. Oh, yes. That was a great addition to, um, I would say, it's all started, I mean, because of, I have kids and uh, they play with Lego all started. Sometimes, you know, I was playing with them and then I realized, okay, this combination of Lego blocks is something that can be represented from uh, computer memory or some data structure or uh, something. And, Sometimes I even uh, used, um, I would say, theme like a block, so put it on a panel and then represent traces and logs in such a way, right? But uh, at one point I was thinking, actually, um, I, I, I wanted uh, to do something with my son about um, chemistry, some project for school. And then I was thinking actually what actually to do. And then I was reading some book about uh, artificial chemistry. Uh, this is chemistry that could be symbolic with some, uh, I would say, atoms could be completely fictional, like a universe could have uh, 1000 atoms, only three atoms, so everything could be and chemical reactions could be completely made up. So that's great, uh, wow. uh, I would say, domain called artificial chemistry. It's used also kind of in unconventional computing studying uh, um, life and so on, many things, you know. And uh, the idea came to me actually to, um, to use um, Lego uh, to represent uh, chemical structures, but not in a way like um, I would say in 3D that was done before, but on the plate, base plate. So, and this uh, naturally represents, uh, I would say what we see chemical formulas, chemical structures on paper. So it, actually very easy to reason. You have uh, electrons, you can put small blocks, it's, uh, put reactions, so very powerful. And from that, actually, I came uh, later to uh, the idea to um, try um, mathematics as well, category theory, because I wanted to um, uh, write something about category theory sometime before that, and even started. Because category theory I learned by accident back in 2003 wasn't even connected to functional programming as it is now known, or, um, I would say, uh, computer science. So it was just pure interest. And it was always associated with uh, physics, mathematics, biology, something like that, category theory. I never thought about it in context of programming. I knew it was computer science, but computer science of the past, not current functional programming languages, for example, Haskell or Scala and other languages. And I wanted to write a book, so I started, but then I have, I have actually a very long list, probably 200 books to write, probably they would never be written. So, uh, and what, that was once one of them. So I probably wrote two pages and it was visual. 
So I was using PowerPoint. My, I use Microsoft PowerPoint as well a lot and Visio, Microsoft Visio for diagrams. So I did some diagrams and then I put it aside because, and then when I got this idea to use blocks and after I actually uh, was successful in depicting graphs using Lego because I could use Lego for arrows between objects. Mm -hmm. So, and then I got this idea, okay, so we can depict category theory arrows using Lego as well. And then I started all this series. I actually was thinking maybe one or two parts would be enough. And then I was able to do seven and now have eight. And then I got another idea. Actually, some people complained that they don't like this Lego language for category theory. So they like more traditional diagrams. So I started another series called Coparts because in category theory, you have duality. So you have a objects, arrows between them, and then you have dual objects, dual categories, the same objects, but arrows are completely reversed. So these coparts, the dual two parts, they have the same diagrams, but they are now traditional black and white. Plus they are also color diagrams, but they resemble Lego ones, but they are normal kind of diagrams. So, and I probably did two coparts, it's time consuming. Mm -hmm. all this to do it properly and without mistakes because like to write the first to write each part of category visual category theory i had i have to consult probably 10 15 books on category theory because it's very difficult you know to do it right without mistakes you know some authors in category theory you know there are slight uh, differences in explanations, so I, I I want to make it all coherent, so people won't complain. So far, no one uh, said anything. Like no one found mistakes. I found one people, but uh, no mistakes. So either people love it or they are completely. <laughs> <laughs> so, but no well, one I, actually I, pointed I, me to particular mistake in my visual category theory books. Okay, you. This is wrong, you know. Like, yeah. So, well, I'm sure. I'm sure people I... do. I'm sure people do love it. And for anyone, for anyone who's been listening, I'm, there will be links to all of these things uh, in the transcript that you'll be able to find on on the LeanPub website. And that's that's just so fascinating. And uh, congratulations on a book with one typo. Um, <laughs> that's that's a very it's <laughs> a very big achievement. Um, the uh, the last question I always like to ask guests on the podcast, if they're LeanPub LeanPub authors, is um, if there was any magical feature we could build for you, or any very annoying problem on LeanPub that we could fix for you. Is there anything specific you can think of that you would ask us to do? Uh, actually, I yes, one feature is I was thinking, I have many courses, uh, right? So I publish in PDF format. And right. uh, in order to uh, actually got a great idea, I can say it freely. I mean, anyone can implement, I don't want to patent it. So basically you have a course in PDF, but in order to save time, you can, publish a short course uh, on LeanPub, for example, uh, with questions and answers. I actually recently started uh, writing quizzes for one of my books, and I love this. So in the future, I will add more quizzes to my courses and books. But currently, I have a great courses, and I only want to uh, publish uh, mostly quizzes, you know, like questions okay. and answers. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And at yeah. the end, I want to provide a certificate, but I want greater customization for certificate. So, for example, I tried um, 
with the course, but I wasn't able to um, uh, make it very customizable. For example, I want to put my own image, right? And uh, so is it possible? You know, I don't think, uh, what do you think? Okay, so so you're talking very specific, just so I get it clear. So we, we uh, in addition for anyone listening, in addition to being able to use LeapUp to publish eBooks, you can also use it to publish courses. Yes, uh, where exactly. you can, yeah, and and when when and when you're when you're creating a course, you can set up a certificate for someone to yes. get when they complete the course. Um, and so what you're asking for is more customization around the, yes. the certificates. So for example, I could put, for example, my say Software Diagnostics Institute, you know, my name right, and put my signature and put say I have a very nice background, for example. For right. It. Okay. So okay. that would be more customizable. Okay. Right. So, and the course would be mostly questions and answers mm -hmm. using existing course mm -hmm. because I don't okay. have time to convert all my courses into a markdown format. Right. Right. I will right. use kind of existing course, but in order to get a certificate, you have to purchase this uh, thing. Oh, that's really interesting. Course, and then you know you do some questions and answers, like maybe fifty of them. It won't be easy, right? No. So, but at the end, you get certificate. And so, how do they get in your, in this process? How would a person get graded to prove, or do they get graded by someone else or some machine at all? Okay. So either he already knows this stuff, so then he would answer correctly. He what? Sorry. Either he already knows the stuff, like the subject, right? Right. Right. So he answers correctly he gets graded right or he purchases uh or she purchases the course uh the person purchases the course separately studies okay. and then okay. does this i would say uh course or you you may okay. even name it something differently like right 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 you know whatever is good you know like it would be great for example for me I, i'm not sure about other people but mm -hmm. for me it would be great because i have a I would say seven or eight or even more courses. Okay. And I okay. would actually, instead of converting them into markdown format, splitting into chapters, adding, yeah. I could devise yeah. my questions and answers for each, say, lesson. And then just pass, uh, just put like lesson one, 10 questions, lesson two, 10 questions, lesson or exercise one, I have mostly I do in exercises. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or I even have books uh, like uh, Practical Foundations for Linux or Windows, like debugging, they, they don't have exercises, but they have chapters. So I could say okay. chapter one, questions. Okay, okay. Two. That's really fascinating. Thanks very much for that feedback. That's uh, that's that's really interesting and gives gives me a lot to, to think about. Um, uh, I try yeah, that, this that's... anyway. I try this anyway just to see how it works, you know, maybe for one of the courses. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks very much for that. Uh, yeah, I know, like I said, I have a lot to think about there. But yeah, well, Dimitri, thank you very much for a really great conversation and for taking the time out of a beautiful Dublin evening to, to, to talk to everyone about, you about your thank career you. and about your work and about your books and everything. It's really fascinating. And we could have talked a lot longer about a lot more things, but uh, maybe maybe we'll do another another one in the future. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah thanks very great. much for being a Lean Pub author as well. Thank you. Thank you, Len. That was really great. Thanks. Great journey, great interview. Thank you very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.